Hey, hey there, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we talk to 25 of the world's best homebrewers and get their tips, tricks, and secrets and put them right into your brain pan. And now, of course, I'm wondering... Denny, what happens if somebody's listening to this podcast and they're not a beer fan? Oh, man, I can't even imagine that. Well, hey, anyway, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out. Yeah, there you go. Well, but on today, before we get to conventional wisdom, we've got some news to cover. We're going to go and talk about the beer life in the pub, go into the brewery, talk a couple of things, including some new ingredient tests that we're going to run. Denny's going to, well, he's going to vague book on the podcast about a lab test that he's wanting to put together. That's right. And, and then uh, we move down to San Diego again. Uh, this time we're going to talk to a pair of homebrewers, Derek Springer and Nick Corona, uh, at the Society of Barley Engineers meeting. And, well, you know, really kind of dig into the San Diego homebrew scene. You know, man, it's cold enough here right now that even the thought of San Diego sounds great. Yeah, and, and here today it's a lovely 76 degrees. So, yay. Uh... And then, of course, we'll answer your questions, we'll get a quick tip out there, and we'll give you something sporty for something other than beer this week. But first, I think we got to take care of some business. Yeah, so uh, we're going to have a few words from some of our sponsors here. Stick around, and we'll be right back and get into the show. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by... The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. All right. Well, hey, welcome back. Now, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause. And hey, I don't know if you noticed, but last week we did it again. Episode 23 of The Brew Files. The Brew is out there with traditional traditions with Jeff Allworth. 
which we've been getting great response about. You can go and dig into that episode and figure out just why are the beers of Bohemia so different from the beers of Bavaria, their neighbors, and what the hell does the Cold War have to do with it? You know, man, you guys did a really interesting conversation there, and I'm looking forward to having Jeff back on and talking about other styles. Yeah, I think it will be pretty rad. So, hey, moving on. Okay. Also, if you are in the market for a Zymatic brewing unit from Pico Brew, you can get $300 off by going to their website, picobrew.com, and entering the code PICODENNY, that's P-I-C-O-D-E-N-N-Y, at checkout. You get a cool Zymatic, and you get 300 bucks off. It's a great deal. We both love ours, huh? Oh, yeah. It's a fun toy. Yeah. The other thing is we want to welcome a new sponsor to the podcast, brewswag.com. Yes, I'm going to say it again, brewswag.com. Uh, Brian Welch runs the site and has some really, really cool beer gear available there. And if you go there and enter the code experimental at checkout, you get 7.5% off, and what's even cooler is that Brian matches that 7.5% as a donation to our charity, which is way cool, and we really appreciate Brian doing that. So go to brewswag.com, buy yourself some cool stuff, and get some money donated to our charity, which is... Which is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, which helps fund the care and fight against pediatric cancer. Yeah, man, do it. So get yourself some swag, get yourself some cancer love. (laughs) It's a strange concept, but I know what you mean. Hey, I'm a strange guy. (laughs) That's right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here while we wander over to the pub. So stick around and we'll be talking about the beer life when we come back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. We're back, and we are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA, and we are drinking beers. Today, I'm drinking a Jubilee from Deschutes Brewing. It's this year's batch. It has just come out, and it is great. It, uh, it varies a bit from year to year. This year, it's got a real malty presence to it, but nicely bittered. Kind of reminds me a bit of an English IPA. Great beer. If you see it, try it out. I'm loving this. Yeah, Jubal's always struck me as being one of those uh, stealth holiday classics, right? I mean, Celebration gets a lot of love. Bigfoot gets a lot of love. You know, there's a lot of holiday beers that everybody seems to look forward to, and, and Jubal Ale just always kind of rides right in there, sort of hanging out in the background. But 
That's a damn reliable beer. So what are you having today? Well, so listeners will know that I am on a quest to go visit every single one of the members of the L.A. County Brewers Guild. And I've been at 56 out of 67 until yesterday when a brand new brewery that's actually been in business for a little bit, but finally opened up their tasting room, opened up their tasting room in Gardenia, California, which is right on my commute uh, from work to home. And How so I convenient. Stopped. I know, right? It's just literally right off the freeway. It still took me, by the way, <laughs> 20 minutes to go the two and a half miles between work and the brewery, but there you go. It's LA. And it's called State Brewing Company, and they had a really broad selection of beers, uh, not too shabby for a brewery that's really just opening up to the public right now. They brew both in 10-barrel lengths and one-barrel lengths, one-barrel pilot batches, and they had one of their beers on uh, yesterday that... Well, given my choice in footwear and yours as well, Denny, I had to have. It was a New England hazy IPA called Nice Chucks. <laughs> so I well, brought home that, a, I brought home a crawler of that, and that's that's what we're having now. That might get me to drink a New England IPA, but uh, <laughs> no, no, uh, I'm not committing. Well, hey, you know, nobody's perfect, but I I just had to laugh, and it's actually it's really nice. Kind of avoids a lot of the trap, I think, that we see a lot on the West Coast here with the hazy IPAs where West Coast brewers, you know, as people who listened to last week's Brew Files episode knows, West Coast brewers have a hard time backing away from the idea of, i got to have that bittering charge in there. So, yep, yep, I yeah. agree, man, and that's what I like about them, but whatever, everybody gets to choose what they want to drink, right? Pretty much, but nice chucks. <laughs> nice chucks, indeed. <laughs> Okay, so I guess it's time to move on to another story of the big guy versus the little guy, huh? Yeah, although this one's kind of funny because this is real little guy versus, well, medium-sized city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, and, and a medium-sized city and a big brewery, so it's... Uh, Kind of like the worst of all worlds, huh? Yeah, so Jeff Allworth, again, of last week's episode of The Brew Files and of Beervana, uh, broke a story about uh, Old Town Brewing Company in Portland. So it, Portland has this white stag advertisement sign that hangs out over the city that's become sort of a, a hallmark of the city, a trademark, right? Kind of like the Sitco sign in Boston, the Hollywood sign in L.A. You know, these are things that all started off as commercial advertisements that have since morphed into symbols of the city. And so Old Town Brewing Company, five years ago or more, actually filed for a trademark to use the white stag for beer applications, right? And because it hadn't been contested in five years and everything else, it moved into this sort of special super protected category. Except for now, apparently the city of Portland is trying to strip the trademark from them, I guess. They're, they're trying to trademark the use of the stag for a lot of different products so they can license it out to different companies, right? So the city right. can make money. And one of the things that they want to license it for is for beer and alcohol use. And in fact, they apparently have Anheuser-Busch and Maker's Mark on the, the hook for actually using the license. But they keep running afoul of the fact that Old Town has the legal claim to this. And Old Town actually, at one point in time, made Anheuser-Busch back off, you know, from using it. So the city, I guess, I mean, it really what, it's the city has been just trying to do endless lawsuit after endless lawsuit and effectively trying to force legal fee bankruptcy, almost, it seems like. Yeah, that, that does seem like uh, what they're trying to do uh, just by kind of harassing Old Town 
over and over and over again and keeping Old Town tied up in this legal fight. And, you know, it's a very, very small business. Started off as a uh, pizza place and then added the pub and brewery later. Yeah, well, and so the U.S. Uh, Patent and Trade Trademark Office keeps coming back and going, uh, no, Portland, you, no. But they keep uh, they keep retrying. And Old Town has come up to them before and said, look, you know, we don't care. Just don't use it for beer and, for beer and alcohol because that gets into confusion. Now, I mean, the the... Uh, PTO has come back and basically said, yeah, okay, so the city of Portland wants to trademark the thing with the stag and the shape of the state and the words Portland, Oregon. Well, you can't trademark the shape of the state and you can't trademark uh, the city name, right? So the only thing that's distinctive is the stag. And they're like, no, you can't do that. Uh, they basically say that uh, the applicant in this particular case, uh, or sorry, it says here, the stag design that appears in the applicant's mark, which would be the city, and the registrant's mark, which would be Old Town, are virtually identical such that consumers would mistakenly believe the designs are both logos of a stag that emanate from the same source. And that's pretty much, you know, when the the um, the, the PTO returns back and says, as such, it is likely that consumers will be confused as the source of the goods and services. Accordingly, registrations of the goods uh, is refused uh, pursuant to Section 2D of the Trademark Act. That's pretty much the government, the, the federal government coming back and telling you, no, stop it. You know, but it's not stopping the city of Portland. But what's really interesting to see is the other breweries in Portland are all sort of banding together and sort of putting together events to sort of help raise money to, to keep the old town folks in the fight and, you know, really kind of give their support behind all that. Yeah, you know, so we'll uh, we'll keep you advised on where this goes. We are really hoping that the good guys win this time around. Uh, you never know, though. Well, and then also staying in Portland. Uh, we have some sort of closure news. Yeah, uh, Widmer has had a uh, a pub and restaurant there for quite a while, and it's been a very popular place. And all of a sudden, seemingly out of the blue, giving all their employees only a week's notice, they have decided that they're going to close it down, get rid of the restaurant, and turn it into a tasting room. Uh, they claim that it fits their mission better, puts more focus on the beer. There are people on the other side who don't really believe those claims very much and uh, think that maybe it foreshadows some financial problems at Widmer. But it's, it's, it's really weird the way they did it, huh? Yeah, it was just kind of a sudden, but remember, this is kind of in line with what we're talking about, where more and more places, because of the you know, sort of the advantages that you get with a tap room. It seems like that's really kind of the model that people are falling under. And maybe it's just now to the point where running a brew pub isn't going to be, you know, sort of profitable. And Widmere, of course, is saying, oh, you know, well, look, we're, we're doing this so that we can focus all the, the, the presentation time and the effort on the small brew house that we have there. That are, that's our innovation brew house, because I think it's like 10 barrels as opposed to mm-hmm. everything else. But to your point about sort of financial problems, so Widmere is part of CBA which is the Craft Brewers Alliance, which is Woodmere, Pyramid, and or sorry, uh, Woodmere, Red Hook, and Kona, mm-hmm. right? And right. all three of those brands are, are partially funded by Anheuser-Busch because Anheuser-Busch, I think, owns 30% or 33% of CBA. And what was interesting was that Red Hook last, no, actually this year, sorry, earlier this summer, was in the news because they had a massive brewery that they built in Woodenville, Washington, about like 250,000 barrels 
that they were only running at a third capacity on, even after bringing in contract brews. So they actually shut down that Woodenville plant. So you take these two things together and you kind of start to wonder about some of the, the financial health or really just some of the changes in the market because really – you think about Widmere and Red Hook and these guys, they're part of that same old school craft uh, beer thing like Sierra Nevada and New Belgium and Dogfish and Stone. You know, these are the guys who have been around for a while. And we've talked in the past that they're all sort of facing challenges because of this change to how people are pursuing craft beer and kind of always going for the new thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, Again, this is one of those things I'm really curious to see where it goes. They have been catching a lot of flack for it. It's going to be interesting to see if it works out the way they assume it's going to work out. Yeah. Uh, well, and I mean, let's be frank. I mean, there's, they gave everybody a week's notice or most of the people a week's notice, which yeah. sometimes in the restaurant world is far more than you ever actually see. Well, that's true. But in in the real world of treating people decently, it sucks. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not going to argue, <laughs> but now, now we have to move on to a story that I think, I think may have just been written for you. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, this may be one of the only times I've ever really agreed with Garrett Oliver. Uh, he came out, uh, in an opinion article saying that he thinks that, uh, Northeast IPAs are a fad that will go the way of the black IPA that, uh, they're just not interested in brewing one. And I know that this is a uh, a topic that a lot of people have very strong feelings about, which always blows me away because, hey, it's beer. But I agree with him 100%, as Drew knows, and I'm sure that a lot of you have gathered from listening to me talk about Northeast IPAs. If you like them, fine, drink them. I'm not saying that uh, that you shouldn't drink them. But what I'm saying is that I feel that they're like a fad. People uh, absolutely believe that black IPAs were here to stay and they'd be around forever. And where they were once ubiquitous, now you hardly ever see one anywhere. That's not to say they're gone, but they're just not as present as they once were. And I'm seeing that same thing happen with Northeast IPAs. There were, uh, I think, probably six months ago, every brewery here in Eugene was brewing at least one Northeast IPA-style beer. And now they are hard to find because the customers burned out on them and the brewers burned out on them. And so I, I think that Garrett actually uh, makes some really good points and really has his finger on the pulse of what's going on out there. Well, and... I think first, you know, we didn't even say uh, who Garrett is, but I mean, if you don't know, Garrett Oliver has been the brewmaster at Brooklyn Brewing Company for ever and a day. And he's, I think, been arguably one of the people out there really trying to push the message that beer should be taken seriously. Um, what I thought was interesting, because this was all in an interview with the morning advertiser, because he was over in London doing a tasting, because Brooklyn is international now. They... Uh, and what I thought was a really interesting piece was what he says is uh, New England IPA is a beer style that can be really tasty when it is well made, but it can't even sit on a shelf for two weeks. It has no shelf life to it at all. It is the first beer style based around Instagram culture and based around social media. So <laughs> I thought that was the, the really interesting part because I've heard the same thing uh, ladled out at restaurants where there are a lot of people talking about things like avocado toast or you know, these other sort of dramatic dishes and it's all based around instead of the flavor, it's about how it looks so that you can put it on social media so you can get a lot of likes. 
And that was one thing that kind of cracked me up and seen it. But I'll tell you what, here in here in L.A., I mean, like I said, I'm having a nice chucks right now. I'm still seeing a lot of uh, New England style IPAs. But what I am also noticing is almost all of those same breweries that have a New England IPA or two or three, they're all also making beers that somehow reference the idea as clear. So even State Brewing Company has a, you know, let's be clear IPA. Uh, another brewery down here, El Segundo, which specializes in IPAs, has a clear as AF IPA. Uh, so I'm starting to see some of that uh, pushback come come around where both are staying on, but now now people are really calling out, hey, no, no, that's our clear one. These are our hazy ones. Yeah, I'm going to be curious to see where this goes in the future because I have been paying attention as I travel around the country and around the world and what I'm seeing is less of a haze craze than there was, but you know, uh, you can only predict so much and then you just kind of have to wait and see what happens. Yeah. Careful. If you keep saying there'll be no haze craze in the future, you might become, you know, somebody trying to predict the number of computers in the world. (laughs) Yeah. Forget that. Okay. There are our opinions about other people's opinions. We're going to take a quick break now and walk over to the brewery where we'll be actually talking some homebrewing stuff. So stick around. We'll be right back. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaca you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaca wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Stainless steel is gleaming. The kettles are humming. It's the brewery. And it's time to make some beer. But Danny, last episode, you dropped a quick tip about, you know, sort of using your equipment where it best shines. So I know that you actually finally got a chance to put together your hybrid system. So why don't you remind the listeners about what it was that you talked about and then what it was that you actually did and how it worked and what sort of shocking change you might have to your brewing regime. Yeah, when I... <laughs> when I brought this up the last time, I hadn't actually tried it. It was it was a gleam in my eye and a wild idea, but uh, it actually worked out really well. What I did was I uh, used my grain father to mash a batch. Uh, I like that because I wanted to do a step mash this time, and it the continuous recirculation in the grain father uh, is, is handy for the grain that I was using this time, which was uh, kind of an untested craft malt. And I just, I didn't know what it was going to be like to mash it. So I wanted to kind of take every precaution I could. So after doing the mash in my grain father, I connected the output of its pump to the inlet on my kettle rather than just draping the hose over the top. I actually pumped it in through the uh, the valve that's on the bottom, so it filled nice and slowly from the bottom. 
And I got to tell you that the whole thing worked brilliantly. Uh, you may remember a year or so ago, I was talking about uh, combining systems uh, and uh, having a lot of trouble, chillers not fitting into kettles, stuff like that. Uh, this was a little bit less radical and much, much more successful. I ended up, believe it or not, with a brew house efficiency of 92% on that beer. Now, I don't know if that's because of the system. It could be because of this new malt, and I didn't. Uh, I just had to assume the potential extract, and it could be that I assumed low and there was more there. But at any rate, it worked great. It made things easy. It made things work really well. And uh, I may be using my cooler less often in the future and going back to this hybrid That's system. right, boys and girls. The question may no longer be blue or red cooler, but cooler at all. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and there there are still uh, nice things about using the cooler, too. But uh, now I feel like I have a really, really decent alternative to that. Well, you heard it there first. Get yourself a grandfather and then use it as a, as a mash tun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of an expensive mash tun. But hey, you know, if you, uh, if you have the equipment, it right. works well, now, great. Okay, moving away from equipment, let's go talk some hops. Because uh, listeners, you'll remember a couple of weeks ago we had uh, Brian on from YCH Hops. And we talked all the sort of new things that they're playing with. They talked their debittered leaf and these hop core samples that, the, that they're you know, putting it out there. And well, you know, of course us being us, we went mm, toys and Brian being Brian, he <laughs> sent us a bunch of toys. So you may have seen on our Instagram feed, Denny and I have a plethora of hop samples to play with, including D bitter leaf, the cryo powder, and also those wonderful single bale, uh, whole hop plugs. So Denny, what are you going to do with your, your, hop swag well i'll tell you uh brian talked about using the debittered leaf as mash hops and that really struck a chord with me because i've done mash hopping in the past and didn't really feel like it did much for me but you know i it's it's hard to argue with him when he says that he's had really good luck with it and it definitely gave me a reason to try it again so I'm going to be using some of the debittered leaf in a mash and returning to my quest for the American mild. And since the last time I tried it, uh, I've uh, started working with the Mecca grade estate malts. And I found that the flavor in those is really amazing and uh, may, may be the key that I was missing to trying to get something that didn't taste like water before. So my next uh, my next iteration of the American Mild will be using the YCH Debittered Leaf. Uh, I haven't decided exactly what varieties yet. Uh, some uh, Mecca Grade Lamanta Malt, and which is kind of like their Pale Ale Malt, and some of the Metolius, which is like their Munich Malt, and Y Yeast 1450. There's an American beer. Hopefully, it'll turn out great. You know, and and I wasn't at all surprised to hear that uh, you thought Cezanne. Well, because my other reaction was he had talked about how the deep bitter leaf had sort of a that American flair with a noble sort of presentation, and so one of the things that they sent us was a bunch of laurel deep bitter leaf, and so yeah. Also, because I live in Los Angeles, I'm making what I'm going to call the Laurel Canyon Cezanne. If you're from L.A. or know the music industry, that should make your heart sing a little bit. 
<laughs> oh man. It just, you know, that's one of those puns that's so bad that it's, it's awesome. good. But yeah, so Laurel Canyon says on because I really want to see if I can make I I like uh, American hops in a saison, like some of these low coho hops, these fruity hops, but I like them when they're paired up against that 3711 yeast. But I want to see if I can actually use like a, a classic DuPont style strain, so 3724 or 565, and use the laurel in that and get that sort of beautifully balanced kind of character there, right? Without being overpoweringly American. Now, and you're going to put yours in the kettle, yeah, right? These are going to go in. Actually, they're going to go in, I think, as Whirlpool. Okay. But it'll be interesting to compare the uh, the use of the debittered leaf in two different in two different ways, huh? Yeah. So, at least for this first pass, I'm going to just treat them as if they are hops, they're pellets that happen to be 2.9% alpha, and, right. and see how that works. And who knows? I may have to do some adjustments, but I'm really super excited about it. Yeah, I, I am too, man. Uh, these things have a lot of potential to be super cool. And so I'm really looking forward to getting a chance to play with it and see just what we can do with it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that we're both more interested in the Devitard Leaf, at least in terms of playfulness, than than the Cryo. But I know that you have well, s- some of the Cryo coming up too. Yeah, right. I have been uh, I have been brewing with the uh, the Cryo Lupulin pellets, not the not the Debittered Leaf. Uh, I have been using them in the whirlpool and as dry hops. And I've got a couple more uh, experiments to do with them. And I'm going to be starting to write some blog posts for YCH about them, how to use them, what they do, uh, how they do it. Well, maybe how they do it. Um, but we'll let you know when those are available so you can check them out because we, uh, we think that these cryo hops really, really have a lot of potential. And uh, there's only going to be more and more of them available out there for home brewers. So we want to give you some ideas about what you can do with them. Hey, I think that's enough brewing for now. Let's go talk some science. Just real brief. Oh, let's let's do that. We're gonna head over to the lab and tease you with a little bit of information about uh, an upcoming experiment. So stick around. We're gonna be right back. Y yeast has been producing premium liquid yeast for over thirty years and continues to provide home brewers with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals. Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham collaborated with Y-East to bring you this quarter's private collection. As the weather starts to cool, some of the world's greatest beer festivals are getting ready to celebrate. Lagers can be the ideal beer for any season, but there's no better time than autumn to brew some of the classics. With their lower fermentation temperatures and accentuated maltiness, our 2002 PC Gambrinus Lager, 2487 PC Hellebach, and 2575 PC Kolsch II will lend ideal variety and complexity through the months to come. Get them October through December 2017. Bunsen burners are going. The Jacob's ladder is bzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzz
Yeah. Uh, you remember a while back, maybe about a year ago, uh, we had an IBU experiment. We had Glenn Tenseth on, and uh, we did some experimenting about uh, if the IBUs that your software predicts are anywhere near the IBUs that you're really getting. And there were a lot of variables involved in that that can affect your utilization. Glenn has always firmly believed and based his theories and equations on the belief that it's the gravity of your wort that has an effect on hop utilization. And the higher the gravity, the less utilization you get. It seems pretty easy to check out. But as we were doing some research, we ran across some theories by John Palmer and a guy named uh, Tom Shellhammer at Oregon State University, thinking that maybe it's the protein level of your wort that makes a difference and that the protein can coat the hops and reduce the utilization of them. So I've been working up a way to possibly test that theory, and I'm going to uh, try it out by brewing three batches on the Zymatic. And I'm not going to tell you a lot more about it right now, because I don't want anybody doing this experiment until I do it. We're going to try and do this like real science this time, kids. The idea behind science is not that you do a single experiment and announce results that everyone takes as gospel. The idea is that someone does an experiment, and then other people try and replicate those results by doing exactly the same experiment. So once I get all my protocols down and I've had a chance to perform this, I will definitely lay it out there and we'll be looking for other people to do the same kind of experiment and see if uh, my results have any validity on a broader scale. In other words, Denny wants to play first. Well, not so much that as I want to try and do this with a little bit tighter control than we usually do experiments around here. Denny, can I just say... Remember the word joke? <laughs> joke. 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 Hmm, what does that mean? This is my OCD at work. I, I really want to do this this way and just see how it works, because I truly believe that, uh, that there's some validity in, in doing this. Well, hey, it's an experiment on an experiment. So let's experiment. <laughs> That's right. So anyway, so stay tuned. I hope to have this done in the next month or so and then lay it all out for you. Uh, the real goal behind this is to have results in hand so that when I go to New Zealand in March for the New Zealand homebrew conference, I can uh, present the results there. Well, it sounds good to me, but you know what? I'm sick and tired of standing around in the lab. I want to lounge. So let's lounge. It is time to lounge. We're going to head over, sit down in those comfy chairs and listen to an interview that Drew did. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com.
Well, you may remember that Drew was down in San Diego recently, and he just couldn't resist going to a whole bunch of breweries and not only drinking the beer, but talking to the brewers there. This is one of them, right? No, no, no. This is actually, this was the whole reason I was at San Diego. I got invited down to go speak at a Society of Barley Engineers meeting, uh, talk about Saison's, goo figure. And we they had their meeting at Booze Brothers uh, up there in Vista, I believe. And while I was there, just before the meeting began, I sat down with Derek Springer, who had been the president, uh, gave up his presidency, I think, that night of the Society of Barley Engineers. And Nick Corona, uh, who's actually a member of Coif, who came in and said hi to us. And you remember Nick won big at the AHA conference last year. And so we sat down together. We, we talked about the San Diego homebrew scene. We talked about how they got into beer and what homebrewing means when you're in the middle of 170 plus breweries. <laughs> yeah, really. So uh, kick back, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving. And let's listen to this interview with Derek Springer and Nick Corona. All right. Welcome, everybody. I am here in lovely San Diego once again. And I am sitting with two homebrewers I think that you should know. Gentlemen, why don't you introduce yourselves? Uh, my name's Nick Corona. Uh, I've been home brewing now for about, uh, this will be my sixth year home brewing. Uh, got into home brewing, found a beer I liked, and just decided I wanted to put something incredible out there like that. It was actually Maharaja. But uh, I got excited about home brewing after trying that beer and really getting hooked, ordered a home brew kit, and uh, started going full bore on it. Realized quickly that I was going to be able to brew really bad beer very easily, and I was either going to give it up or I was going to figure this out. And so uh, that's been my trek since then. Mm, bad homebrew. Uh, I'm Derek Springer. Uh, I am the president of the Society of Barley Engineers. Uh, and for some reason, Drew thinks that I'm worth knowing. Um, I guess we'll see. Uh, so I've been homebrewing uh, since 2005. Um, my first kit, uh, I didn't really know anything about fermentation, temperature control, uh, you know, anything you really need to know to make good homebrew. Uh, so I thought, hey, you know, I'll stick it in my garage in July, see how this goes. At least it's not, there's no windows in there. And uh, so I come back three days later, uh, it had literally exploded. Uh, I, I can't imagine. I, I, uh, I found beer literally blasted all over my garage. Uh, to this day, I haven't found the airlock. Um, that was my introduction to home brewing. So, oh, uh, I mean, I still have an Imperial Stout that blew up the bottles in my garage, the current garage I'm in. Now, by the way, current garage I'm in well after I was an experienced home brewer, well after I should have known better. <laughs> and somehow this beer still decided to blow up. I'm still finding glass shards from that damn thing. So feel no shame. Hopefully not yeah. in your feet. Well, fortunately, uh, oh no! I I, I, I caught. Uh, I actually cut Denny Khan's uh, finger, my co-host here on the on the podcast for the bottle shard. There you go. I'm crazy with glass. I ended up in the emergency room with a piece of my pinky missing once. But uh. all right, well, <laughs> blood for the beer gods. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, and Nkazi is not satisfied until you bleed. That's right. Well, fortunately, my home brewing has gotten a little bit better in the meantime. I've uh, I've learned a little bit, and uh, you know, it, it doesn't explode as much. Well, and so, Nick, you have uh, special homebrew credentials uh, after this past year, don't you? Yes. Yeah, I have no idea what happened. I can say, though, that uh, I was lucky enough, and luck definitely has something to do with it. You have to be in a position to uh, put yourself 
into that place. But uh, yeah, I had taken the 2016 uh, National Home Brewer of the Year Award at Home BrewCon. So that uh, definitely was the pinnacle, and I don't think I can reach much higher than that. But you know, you 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 work so hard at something, and when you attain something that you definitely were not shooting for, it is quite a surprise, quite a shock, and uh, just something that you kind of relish when you get there. Yeah. What was your reaction when you found out? Like, what? oh man, I was. It was uh, unfortunately I was by myself. Uh, the second part of that is that I was at work. <laughs> I was in my office. So uh, there was a lot of uh, punching the air, jumping up and down, running around in circles, and uh, referring back to make sure that uh, that had actually just happened. I was watching a live stream of it, and I was, coincidentally enough, chatting with um, Keith Cost, who is a big homebrew name up, mm -hmm. uh, up in Northern California, and uh, he had, the funny part about it was he had told me after I won gold, that congratulations, you're a rock star. I didn't know what he meant. Mm -hmm. But uh, after he said that, then I realized that there was something otherworldly when you take the national uh, best of show. So it was just a, a fun thing for me, and I was red-faced for probably about two hours. I stuttered as I told my wife all about it, and uh, she was she was thrilled. But well, and I'm going to guess that none of your coworkers cared. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, it's amazing how you can be uh, so popular with one group and uh, no one knows who you are with another. Does this mean that we get more free beer? Is usually the the response I get to things like that. Well, and so now, and Derek, on on your side of the fence, I mean, you have an audience and a following online. So, why would people know you? Uh, yeah. So I write for the blog fivebladesbrewing.com. Uh, I've been writing there uh, maybe the last three or four years. Um, I like to say that I've been writing uh, Marshall Schott's coattails. Uh, we kind of came up at the same time. Uh, we've been uh, good friends. Mm -hmm. um, I like to write um, kind of when Kettle Souring mm -hmm. um, was blowing up a couple years ago. I got really into that, and I wrote a big series about that. Um, uh, another passion of mine is Neo-Mexicanus Hops. Uh, which is a uh, American variety of hops that mm -hmm. originated in like the New Mexico, Colorado, American Southwest region, and uh, you know I'm just fascinated with uh, you know kind of terroir mm -hmm. and a lot of the beer culture in America we imported from Europe. So I'm always I'm constantly trying to find authentic American uh, beer, you know, ingredients, culture. You name it. You're trying to find the jazz of American beer. Right. And so uh, I got really into New Mexicanus hops, right? And they started kind of blowing up, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago. And those are all from an abbey or like there's yes. a lot of abbey influence. So there, there is a monastery in New Mexico where, uh, and I'm blanking on the guy's name right now, but he's um, basically he would go on these hikes and then he would just pick these wild hops that were growing um, and then if they were good, they would, you know, choose them and reproduce them and breed them. And then um, I guess he was just buds with these guys in a monastery, and they started growing these hops, um, like good monks do. And then they started uh, selling them, essentially, to home brewers because they didn't really produce enough for commercial batches. Um, and that's kind of how I fell in love with them. So I actually have a plant growing in my backyard because they grow really well. Mm -hmm. In the a hot uh, plant, right? A hot plant, yes. Okay. 
they grow really well in uh, the lower latitudes, uh, which, you know, Southern California isn't exactly like a hop hotbed. Nope. Um, but this thing grows like a weed, and uh, it's a lot of, you know, just a lot of fun to, to see it grow and, you know, say that I have something that's kind of like truly American growing in my yard that I can make my beer with. That's very cool. Nick, where did you first discover good beer? Well, after thinking that craft beer was uh, getting exotic, ordering a Heineken or a Samuel <laughs> Adams, and that, that's, that's the truth. So we're talking mid-90s? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got it. Um, I found myself at Churchill's. And ah, good old Churchill's. Yeah, it's right down the street from my house. Uh, I decided I was going to get out of the house. Probably a good good decision at that point just to go have a beer. Um, found myself at Churchill's, just like the name of uh, this beer. It was called Maharaja, which I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. But um, beer literally went from searching and finding 50-cent cans, because that was the most bang for my buck, to calling around trying to find more bottles of Maharaja and it was this experience for me at Churchill's and I ordered Maharaja and I took one sip of it and I was blown away at the fact that I was drinking something that to me was all of a sudden this experience as opposed to just something to take the edge off and it was liquid gold and that was literally where I decided that I wanted to make something like that I mean I thought about it a man made that beer and it just totally changed beer for me. <laughs> so it was Maharaja, and it was at Churchill's. Miracle in a glass. Now, can I ask, what actually led you to order Maharaja? It was strictly the name. I had no idea about styles. I had no idea about anything. And that was where, uh, it was actually about a month after that when I realized what I liked so much about it. And unfortunately, a lot of people out there don't like hopheads. I'm a hophead, self-admitted. But that was where I realized my love for hops was there. And ever since then, I've been trying to separate myself from that by brewing other styles and going into other styles, but uh, still going to be a hophead at heart. A what? San Diego hophead. Who'd have thought? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, I mean, are you actually allowed to open a brewery in San Diego without having one, two in IPAs on tap? If you want to succeed, probably. No. Yeah. Is it possible... <laughs> I want to say theoretically, uh, I, to this day, have yet to find one in San Diego that does not have probably at least three or four at launch. Well, it just, it, it seems like that would be plowing the hard road. Your beer had better be damn good and get people excited. So, uh, Derek, for you, what beer, what beer or what beer experience turned you on to the idea of good beer? So, uh, I'm a fortunate kid. Uh, I grew up in San Diego, uh, in Solana Beach. Um, which many of you know is the home of Pizza Port. Um, if you trace the genealogy of a lot of uh, San Diego breweries, they kind of, you know, they have kind of one foot in Pizza Port, one hey, way or another. Even LA. That's right. We have, we have Pizza Port brewers up in LA too. And uh, so as a kid, I grew up maybe about a mile from Pizza Port. And back then, you know, in the early 90s, like, good beer just didn't exist. Well, by some small grace of God, the one place that did exist was Pizza Port. And so my parents, they wanted to go to Pizza Port all the time. Now, as a kid, I didn't understand it was because of the beer. I was just a kid, and I loved pizza. And the arcade machines. And the arcade <laughs> machines. And they wanted to go there all the time. 
So it wasn't until... You know it was. It was a good Chuck E. Cheese for your parents. Yeah. That's right. Good and call. so w when I grew up, I realized that the reason that they went there all the time is because of the beer. You could actually get real beer there when you couldn't get it anywhere else. So I, I've always had the fortune of kind of being around good beer. I want to say the one that really got me into, uh, into the craft, uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. It's a classic. It's, uh, I, I like to think of it as my desert island beer. Uh, I could drink that beer every day, all day, and never get tired of it. Um, it's just magical. Now, by the way, I think this is funny because this is now uh, the third conversation I've had in San Diego in this day that has somehow invoked the idea of Desert Island beers. So it feels like everybody in San Diego is prepping for Desert Island days. So, <laughs> Nick, is Maharaja still your Desert Island beer? I wish I could say it is, but unfortunately, I uh, expanded my hop knowledge a little bit more. Uh, while Maharaja is a great beer and will always be a great beer, I feel um, I've moved on to Nelson. Unfortunately, uh, from Alpine. That's correct. Unfortunately, uh, Green Flash at the time that they released it had a little bit of an issue with trying to get the same quality from Nelson. Mm -hmm. But I have been tasting consecutive batch after consecutive batch with Green Flash. So they are getting closer, definitely getting closer when it comes to uh, hopefully recreating what Alpine did so well. But Nelson's definitely going to be, be my desert island from Alpine. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, so for listeners who don't know, Alpine was a brewing company located in Alpine. I mean, they're still in Alpine, but they also got bought up by Green Flash with the idea that Green Flash up here in the Vista area was going to brew and expand their beers further and past. But as with any sort of brewery transition, there will always be people who feel like the beers haven't quite transitioned the same way. And maybe they haven't, but it is what it is. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, I just went down there and I actually brewed there recently and they shared some information about that with me about the uh, the learning process that it took them yeah. to, to get that straight. So it was, it's, it's you know, it's going to be a learning process for anyone when you have a great quality beer like that and you're trying to recreate it. Dude, I, I feel messed up when I change a pump in my brewery. <laughs> I can't imagine like trying to take the recipe and moving it over to a whole other facility that has nothing to do with any equipment I ever had anything to do with. Yeah, so it totally makes sense to me. Well, that's the challenge I face in my brewery is that I've reached the point, for better or for worse, I can make exactly the beer that I envisioned. And I don't want to get any new equipment because that means, well, now I'm making a different beer. I got to learn it again. Well, I mean, for me, I, I think the, to my mainline system, I have a couple of systems because, of course, I'm weird. But my mainline system, the most recent change I made was I had a, a jaded hydro to it. Which, uh, yeah, uh, go away from a counterflow chiller. That was that was a big risk for me, and but that was one I think that worked out because it was like, okay, yeah, I like this one, you know. So yeah, no, the the whole changing your brewery. Thing, no, I still have the same size mash tun. I still have the same size, you know, boil pot. I ch I changed the HLT, but I figured the hot water source doesn't matter so much. <laughs> I had a plate chiller sitting in my garage for about two years before I parted with it and said I'm sticking with my immersion. Yep. It, it, it's funny how that worked. There was a good long while where homebrewers really went strong for the counterflow chillers and the immersion chillers. 
Night, and don't get me wrong, I still love my counterflow chiller. I've, I never, I never liked the plate chillers because I always felt those were too difficult to clean on a homebrew level. That's why I didn't do it. Yeah. Well, I, I think those jaded guys really kind of elevated the state of the art for yep. our immersion chillers. And I mean, the, it, it's hard to recommend not an immersion chiller now just yep. because it's so much easier. Jed Brewing Company, proud sponsors of the Experimental Brewing Podcast. Thank you. Ding. All right. Um, so let me get into my favorite question to ask uh, brewers. Omitting the word balance. Describe how you brew your beer, what you're looking for in your beer, Derek. Uh. <laughs> Without saying the word the, uh, definitely for me is drinkability. Uh, drinkability, you know, I, in my brewing, stay away from beers really over about 6% because I can't drink more than about one and a half 6% plus beers. Mm-hmm. So most of the beers that I brew... I use exactly 10 pounds of grain, depending on my yeast strain, and what I mash at, that gets me anywhere from 6% to 4.5%, because I can drink that all day and still feel like a worthwhile adult. Do you ever break from that and go for the imperial stout, the, the double, the... About once a year, I do it just to see if I still can. Uh, I've ex- been experimenting with wheat wine lately. Uh, just because it's a little something out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually pretty drinkable compared to other imperial-style uh, beers. And there's always that big debate about, what do you mean by the words wheat wine? Uh, so think of it as um, kind of a pale barley wine, maybe about 50% wheat. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Gordon Strong, it should emphasize the whiny characters more than the... Uh, kind of the stronger uh, beery flavors, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, Gordon Strong's got some opinions. Well, I was gonna say, we're uh, about 15 minutes away from me telling you why I think Gordon Strong's wrong about at least one thing. <laughs> Gordon would expect me to say that. So, uh, Nick, for you, omitting the word balance, omitting the word balance. Well, as far as my brewing is concerned, unfortunately, I'm a little bit boring tame um, in that I tend to stick to the style guidelines. I tend to stick to numbers. Um, I've always been competitive in my life. I grew up playing baseball. I had a younger brother, so I was always trying to outdo him. So as far as my brewing is concerned, I stick to the style guidelines. I stick to specific styles, and I try to hone my hone my recipes in to where I can get as good of an example of each style that I brew and that basically is numbers driven. So most most of the beers I do, I guess some would consider boring. They don't have any uh, pistachio in them. They don't have any uh, vanilla cream. Um, however, I did just do a beer for the Stone AHA rally, so I had to come out of my comfort zone because weird beers uh, are the only ones that ever show around there. But <laughs> yeah, I'm a boring kind of brewer. A well, boring kind of brewer that wins uh, national competitions. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, at some point in time, you have to accept the idea that you can say I'm boring, but a winner. <laughs> and whatever. I mean, that's like, yeah, uh, Tom Brady, right? I mean, Tom Brady is not flashy, 
But Tom Brady wins. I like that. I like that. Giselle. We'll go with that. Yeah. We'll go with that. <laughs> okay. uh, so, uh, for the both of you guys, there's a lot of stuff out there that brewers talk about, like uh, common wisdom things or things that, that oh, you, you can safely ignore that. Is there a thing that you think that people either ignore or things that are part of common wisdom that people pay way too much attention to that they could ignore? So, Nick, anything on your side of the fence? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'd say the to me the biggest thing that some brewers are, um, and I don't want to say ignore necessarily, uh, I think more guided um, by the fact that most homebrew kits most homebrew shops, most, I guess, literature that you're going to get doesn't go deep enough into yeast propagation. It doesn't go deep enough into cell counts. It doesn't go deep enough into manufacture dates. Um, we're much more fortunate nowadays than our predecessors were in that we have a lot more information, calculators uh, available to us. And I would say that just because you go to a home brew shop and you ask him how much yeast you're going to need and he tells you a pouch doesn't mean that you should listen to him. You really have to get involved down further into what specific style of beer you're brewing, the gravity of your beer, and what your cell counts are starting at and then what your cell counts are stepping up to. So that's one of the things I think that has really improved my beer over time is just understanding exactly how many cells that I'm going to be required, first of all, and then exactly how many cells I'm starting with and exactly how many cells that I will actually be pitching because I'm going to create starters that are specifically sized to this batch of beer. And sometimes, uh, well, most of the time, I go a little bit heavier on the yeast as opposed to the downside. And you definitely, those are your workhorses and you want to make sure you have enough of them. Well, and I was going to say, I think modern day homebrewers, you know, anybody who's gotten in, in like, say, the last decade or so, is really, really spoiled by the amount of fresh yeast they have. That's so, right. All right, that, that makes it a lot easier to ignore all that stuff. Yeah. So, and Dirk, you? So, th- this, I'm, I'm probably going to get run out of town for saying this. <laughs> I, think, I think homebrewers rely on notes too much. Now, let me explain that. I think they rely too much on notes and not enough on procedures. So in my brew day, I rarely write a single thing down because before my brew day, I spend an hour, maybe two hours, writing down every single action I'm going to take during the day. So when I'm brewing, I literally just go down the list, turn on the burner, add the water, mash, you know, mill the grain. So by the time that I'm actually brewing, I don't have to think. I just start doing it, and then if something goes wrong, you know, like maybe I'll write a little note on the printout that I have. (laughs) But like, it is very rare when I'm brewing if something out of the ordinary happens, and it's usually like, you know, a wild dog ran into my garage and I had to chase it out, right? Needs more tick. Yeah, so (laughs) everything I'm gonna do I've prepared ahead of time, and it it means that I don't have to worry about did I forget something, am I missing ingredients. It's all been thought out ahead of time, and that the brew day, which is usually pretty stressful, I have one less thing to worry about, or a dozen less things to worry about. I just go down the list, 
and it's rare that I forget something. Now, do you do that because you feel like that gives you extra comfort, or do you do that because that gives you extra room to have a beer while you're brewing? I actually don't drink while I brew. That's two of us. That's three of us, actually. That's three of us. uh, Well, so my my role, and listeners of the podcast will, will know this, I do not drink anything during the brew day until I have the fermenters clean, the beer's in the boil, the chillers are ready, everything is ready, so the only thing I have to do is basically turn on the water hose and then fire pump to dump everything into the kettle. Before that, I don't, uh, I don't drink. So, I concur. Uh, I, I do it because my memory is garbage, <laughs> and uh, I get really stressed out while I brew, so stress plus a poor memory means that who knows what I end up with at the end of the day. Uh, I'm also an engineer, and oh. so uh, what is so it saying? You, you're an engineer. I'm an engineer. Nick? I wish I could say and I'm an engineer. I am a casino manager, so I have no engineer uh, knowledge. No, but you have numbers knowledge. That, yeah. is, that is true. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the saying goes, uh, proper procedures prevent poor performance. Piss poor performance. Something like that, <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, all right. Uh, now... You guys give those examples. Is there anything that you think that people put too much emphasis on? Uh, I think they put too much emphasis on uh, luck. Mm-hmm. Um, brewing is both art and science, mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of people don't consider that input X gives you output Y. They think it's input X plus fairy dust plus uh, the stars are in alignment gives you output Y. Um, it, it's very, like, input-output driven. So uh, Dirk is saying, I, if I'm understanding you correctly, pay attention. If you don't pay attention, you're not getting good beer. Right. I Nick? could, you know, I come from the point to where I put emphasis on every single aspect of my brewing. So I have a hard time believing that people could put too much emphasis on something because you delve into so many different things when it comes to procedures. Um, I would say maybe some people put too much emphasis on worrying about their beers. As the beers, as the beers brewing, I'm noticing a lot of people taking pictures of this, pictures of that. What is this? Why is this? Why hasn't it done this? A lot of times, patience is uh, patience is going to kind of bear all when it comes to every when it comes to every little bit of brewing. All right. And so now, what do you think makes your beer uniquely yours? Like what uh, what if you were to put two glasses down in front of me, Derek, your beer, Nick, your beer, what do you think makes your beer different than the others? Nick? Wow. Well, with Derek sitting here, probably not too much different. I know Derek. Uh, I know Derek knows what he's doing. Um, with some other brewers, I would have to say, with with uh, the caveat that I still have a lot to learn. And I carry myself that way when it comes to my brewing. The, the less I know, the more that I'm going to be able to learn. But dude, dude are you kidding? I, I still sit here and go, I've, I've got so much more I got to read. I got to, I, I got to figure all this out. Like, right. Come on. Right. So, to the analogy of me sitting down with someone and my beer to theirs, I, I guess I would say that I have worked on that beer before I even brewed it for probably about a two week period to where my numbers, I've gone back to them five, six, seven, eight, nine times, just trying to make sure that I have delve into every single 
bit and bit of bit and piece of that beer when it comes to water, my profile, the yeast, the malt bill, everything. I've really delved into it and kind of torn it apart and built it back up to the point to where I have that brew day and I put out the best thing that I can at that point. Next week it might be different. So in other words, Nick will tolerate no surprises. That's right. You hit the nail on the head. Dirk? So I think what makes mine distinct, um, I like to, I guess the word I'm looking for is terroir. I think, I, 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 I wouldn't call myself a romantic because I'm an engineer. Um, However, you do walk around with a straw hat. That's right. <laughs> uh, I, I like to add a little bit of home into whatever I'm brewing. Either it's the local water, either it's, uh, like I said, homegrown hops, American-grown hops. Um, I've actually been experimenting a lot with corn lately because I think there's few things more American than corn. True. And... Um, I, I just want to know that the thing that I'm drinking is a part of me. So uh, I know that the glass in front of me is uniquely mine, and it's going to have a little bit of home in it. There you go. I, I think that's a, and yeah, I think you're right. That's a, that is a wonderfully romantic answer. That is that is very much in the throw sort of uh, nature of things. All right, uh, Nick, favorite uh, favorite brewing ingredient for you right now? Oh, my favorite brewing ingredient. I guess if I if I go there, it, it's more of a crutch. I I, I guess if, if it comes to uh, from homebrew to uh, commercial, uh, as I've found from some of the other commercial brewers. But uh, dry malt extract. Mm-hmm. Um, keep using it on my starters. So many of my so many of my cohorts and friends they they reuse their their runnings. Uh, oh, hey, look, all all of my pressure can starter bars made with DMA. There you go. That's that's got to be my favorite. It's just so easy. I love it. It's still there. I'm not. I'm, I'm obviously all green at this point, but uh, it is so nice to be able to scoop out a little bit of this and get yourself rolling quick. Yeah. For me, uh, I'm definitely going to say it's Weirman Vienna Malt. Well, um, so, so, so one, why? One of the other things that's a passion on my blog that I write about is Vienna Lager, mm. um, and. I've tried a lot of different Vienna malts, uh, American-grown, uh, different German ones. Um, it, it's the closest to perfect malt character in a single malt that I can find. Uh, I brew a Vienna lager that is 99% Weirman Vienna and then just a dash of uh, you know some kind of roasted malt for color. And... It is the most complex, the most smooth, the most, like, everything that I'm looking for in a beer out of a single malt. Mm -hmm. So, now, what do you think of the argument that the only true Vienna lager on the the market right now is Negromidol? Well, if you ask them, they call it a uh, Munich Dunkel. Which would be hysterically wrong. Well, that's what they say. Um, I think... uh, What's the brewery name? Kahutamek. Uh, they make a beer called Noche Buena. 
Oh, yeah, Noche Buena, yeah. That, that, I would argue, is the most authentic Vienna lager that's made. Uh, but they only make it once a year yep. around the holidays. Well, I would even say that's a little bit stronger than a traditional Vienna, but... It's yeah. like a winter warmer Vienna. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like a slightly amped up... Hey, we put like a couple extra pounds of malt in this one. Enjoy. <laughs> but boy, howdy, I can drink me some Negro Modelo. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, if generally speaking, if Negro Modelo is on draft, I don't care if you have Pliny the Younger, free, you know, double pours. I want Negro Modelo. We're seeing a resurgence in uh, San Diego of the Vienna Lagers. A lot of a lot of the places well, are putting them out. But I mean, I would, I would have to I'd have to guess some of that at least is due to the very obvious close proximity to Mexico and. And that sort of thing here in, in San Diego, and you know the number of uh, you know people of Mexican heritage who are very proud of that, and the number of people who are growing up going say, hey, you know what? I went to the Mexican restaurant, and I had tacos, and I had negro medolas. So yeah, hey, give me some of that. Because look, I like some negro medolas. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, and I like me some ne- noche buena. I I judged uh, the Pacific Beach, uh, it was called PB Beer Fest, I think, a couple of weeks ago, and I want to say. 80% of the beers at that fest, they're all commercial beers. We're all, quote-unquote, Mexican lagers. <laughs> so I think it's like the Mexican-style beers, like they've, well, they've crossed the border and they're, they're taking over. Well, I mean, uh, to me, like I, I still hear people say Mexican lager. I think most of them are thinking, or at least my perception is, if somebody says, hey, I made a Mexican lager, I'm thinking they made, like, the Corona Tecate, you know, type knockoff, not a Negro Medolla type thing. But I'd be perfectly happy to see more of those Mexican Vienna lagers come up this way because I like the style. Because, to your point, I mean, it is a lot of what you want out of malt without being cleanly obnoxious. Very drinkable. Let's avoid that. <laughs> All right. So before before we leave out here, are there any other uh, brewing thoughts that that you guys have that you want to share? Like things that you think are important, things that, you, that people aren't paying enough attention to, or things that that you just feel very passionate about. So uh, I've been brewing a lot of uh, kind of sour, wild, funky beer lately. Um, I just want to advise everyone. You know, don't don't fear the funk, right? Uh, you know, maybe get like a separate carboy. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, like my brewery isn't infected. Like just uh, just a couple days ago, actually, I was transferring a uh, lambic style beer that I had brewed, and uh, I didn't have a hose secured, and it literally sprayed <laughs> all over my garage. Uh, but I'm I'm pleased to announce that none of my beers have been infected. Um, so don't don't fear the funk. Um, now, so, do do you, do you feel strongly about like having separate plastic for the funky things or? Yeah, so I have separate uh, like transferring tubes and you know like so the the clean and the dirty stuff never the twain shall meet. Right. Um, but don't worry about having them in the same brewery. Yeah, like I, I actually in a pinch I I brewed a Vienna Lager. Um, my carboy. My clean carboy was full, and I had my quote-unquote dirty carboy, and it was the only one available. So I said, well, got to do what I got to do. I just filled it with extra strong sarsan and then, uh, you know, fermented in that. Not a single comment about infection. 
There we go. All right, Nick. Awesome. Well, for me, I guess I would have to say, and this is something that it took me a little while to learn, and I think any artist who puts time into something would uh, have a difficult time with this, but uh, you can't take things personally. Mm. And um, that goes a number of different ways. Uh, One, if you want to learn, you've got to be ready to hear some negative feedback, and you've got to be ready to open your mind to the possibility that you did something wrong. Um, your mom and dad are going to tell you that your beer is fantastic, but you should really listen to the input of a judge when you get it back. The other thing is that uh, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I think a lot of people get argumentative when it comes to the way that they do things because they've seen good results. There, again, is more than one way to skin a cat. So if you've reached a good goal with the way that you've done something, then maybe other people should listen to that and vice versa. You need to be able to kind of open your mind a little bit to the fact that there are definitely um, more than than one way to actually reach a goal when it comes to beer. All right. So before we leave, two last questions. Are are there anything else that you want to promote? I mean, so Nick, I know... uh, just the other day, you were starting to talk about uh, Miguel, one of our one of the Igors for the Experimental Green Cod podcast. You want to put some words out there? I would absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you opening it up for that. Uh, Miguel Loza Brown, uh, for those that know him, is a big, big staple in the San Diego homebrew community and throughout uh, a lot of the commercial breweries as well. Many people know him just for the simple fact that he has one of the kindest hearts, uh, one of the most humble people I've ever met. Not the kind of person who would go and uh, put a drum beat for himself, but he's reached a point in his life right now where he definitely needs the support of our community. So Miguel this month found out, this past month in October, found out that his nine-year-old daughter has uh, lymphoma. It's stage three at this point, and uh, she is currently undergoing some serious treatment at Rady. This is going to need the support of the community. Miguel needs to know that we're all behind him. So if anyone out there reaches out to him on Facebook, anyone out there wants to look for his GoFundMe page right now, it would be a huge help. And if you can't afford the money to just donate a few bucks on his GoFundMe, then I would highly recommend that you at least just reach out to him on Facebook. Once again, his name is Miguel Loza Brown. Miguel runs a hop farm in Ensenada. He also runs a home brew shop in Ensenada. So Miguel is a huge part of the Ensenada and Mexico as a whole homebrew community. And he is a big part of the San Diego community. He does wet hop picks at his farm from a lot of the commercial brewers around here. And he provides wet hops and dried hops to those commercial brewers. Big, big name. And he really would love to see you show him some love. And I can uh, guarantee it would be much appreciated. So for the experimental brewing side of the fence, we already took part of the, the bank account that we have for both charity and for the business. And, uh, you know, Miguel had, has done a couple of the Igor experiments. He's done a, a bunch of things because he's, he's just very dedicated. And so we took part of the money for the podcast and we already donated to the GoFundMe page, which we will make sure that we are going to link in the podcast because, I mean, look, cancer sucks. Cancer for kids really fucking sucks. I would call it bullshit. That was the word I had. Yeah. So we are definitely giving some money from experimental brewing, and we would highly encourage all of our listeners, if you can, go follow the link for Miguel's 
GoFundMe page, go give a little bit of money or, you know, to Nick's point, at least go give a little bit of encouragement if you can't afford some dollars because you know what? It is going to be beyond the pale of things that people are meant to deal with, to deal with the idea that your child has cancer. So go say a nice word, shall we? Be much appreciated. All right. Derek, any closing thoughts before we, before we leave? Anything you want to bring us back up on? Yeah, well, I just want to say as a president of a homebrew club, uh, if, if you aren't a member of a homebrew club, I, I would really just suggest that you go and check one out. Like, you don't have to, you know, commit your life to it. But the thing that I've found is that homebrewers really are probably the nicest and friendliest and just most awesome people that you meet. And, you know, they want to share beer with you. They want to share good times with you. They want to teach you good things. Uh, so if you've been hesitant to go meet with other homebrewers, just do yourself a favor and go check them out. Well, and, I mean, look, when's the last time you ever went to go meet anybody with beer in hand and they said bad things to you? Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. It's beer. It's all good. All right. So before uh, last question before we go. Obviously, we always close the podcast out with things other than beer. Because we are not just beer people. We are many obsessive type people. Are there things that you are obsessed with outside of beer? Derek? Uh, so I'm really big into WordPress. Uh, it's as like, in the blogging? As in the blogging software. Now, I know Drew uses uh, Drupal, I believe. I do use Drupal uh, on our site. Which is fine. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I just love uh, web technology and open source yep. and... Uh, you know, just participating in a big community that loves sharing uh, and technology. So I guess, I guess that's why I like WordPress. Well, I mean, look, there's so much open source web technology devoted around homebrewing that it's insane. So you are way not alone in that, in that little passion of yours. And Nick? I guess I'm somewhat of a tinkerer. I've uh, just dabbled in softball, dabbled in golf. I like to play play little sports that get me out of my realm uh brewing actually became my passion but uh, outside of that family has been on my focus my wife my daughter trying to take care of that under my roof so uh that's about it not too much more than that i'm a, I'm a simple dude yeah, you're very focused <laughs> numbers family it's good all right well hey guys Again, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Derek, thank you so much for inviting me down here to the Society of Barley Engineers meeting. I guess uh, we uh, it's time for us to go get down to business and actually have a meeting. Yeah, I got to put on my president hat right now and uh, get the meeting started. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, thanks, guys, so much. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having it's us. It's a pleasure. Wow, man. You know, you're right. With all those breweries around there, I can see that it would be both like uh, – an incentive for brewing beer because you're so jazzed by all the ideas you get and at the same time going, but I want to drink their beer instead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do I buy a six pack or do I make a six pack? It's the classic conundrum. Yeah. Well, the answer is always both, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, who, who needs just a six pack? It's always a 12 pack. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, and hey, by the way, guys, if you have other homebrewers that you want us to talk to, because I mean, I kind of like talking to homebrewers. I think it's a little more applicable to some of the things that we do. You know, don't forget, drop us a line and give us some of those uh, deets so that we can talk to some fun homebrewers and get you some more information. Please do. We, uh, we like suggestions. We like giving you guys what you want. So let us know what you want. Uh, speaking of which, I guess we have some uh, results from our survey we're going to talk about next time, too, huh? Oh, yeah, eventually. 
<laughs> eventually. Yeah, maybe next time, maybe not. Okay, so eventually what we're going to do, too, is get out of here, and we're going to uh, wrap up the show with some questions and answers, a quick tip, and something other than beer. So stick around. We're going to be right back. All right, it's time to wrap this baby up and get out of here, and we're going to start off with some questions and see what kind of answers we can come up with. Our first one comes via email from Christian Sigurleifsson, and Drew gave me this because he wanted to hear me pronounce that, and I think I did reasonably well, so let us know, Christian. Dear Denny and Drew, I, as so many others, love your show. Oh, man, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thanks for your hard work. You've obviously put a lot of thought and work into creating the recipe of the show and your choice of ingredients for everything. I think my favorite part is the Q&A, since that's the part where I can learn new things and directly apply them to my own brewing. Thanks. About me, I'm Icelandic, live in Denmark, started brewing about 15 months ago, and brew on average every other week. I've learned a lot in a short period of time. I'm obsessed with this hobby. I always make my own recipes, and once in a while I stumble upon a problem that I'm not sure how to solve. Here comes one. I've made a few hop-forward beers and maybe dry-hopped about four to five of them. When I've used a lot of hop pellets in the dry hopping, I've experienced metallic, iron, harsh flavor. The smell of the fruity hops disappears when swirling the beer in the glass for half a minute or so, and I'm left with that harsh chemical smell. My process of dry hopping has been to throw the pellets on the beer after it's fermented, but in the primary. The hops stay on top of the beer for maybe two days and then start sinking to the bottom. I leave it in there for five to seven days from adding them. My brew equipment is a Brewster, Danish version of the Grainfather made of stainless steel, and I use plastic buckets for fermentation. There is no chance that this problem has anything to do with the equipment, as this doesn't happen to other beers I make, and it's all stainless steel plastic. I'm having three theories. Maybe you have other theories, or you can verify debunk mine. Okay, theory number one. Because it have anything to do with oxidation of the hops, especially since they sit on top of the beer before starting to sink into the liquid. Number two, the two times I've experienced this, I dry hopped with 250 grams or more of pellets in four to five gallons of beer. Can that be a problem? Overkill. Number three, the yeast was still in the beer since I was too lazy to transfer it to a secondary. Can the big amount of hops getting in contact with the yeast create harsh chemical metallic flavor smell? The beer is not undrinkable. It's just not as delicious as I'd expect it to be. Thanks so much for your show, and I'm looking forward to hear your thoughts on this issue. Best regards, Christian Ori Sigurdlifsson. Don't worry about the pronunciation. Okay. So, I would say, based on your description, that I would go for two of your three possibilities there. You say the beer is harsh and metallic. 
metallic always says oxidation to me. So I would think that, yes, it's either that your hops are oxidized before you put them in or something about putting them in there is oxidizing them. The other thing is that you say the yeast was still in the beer. I have found that I like getting the beer off the yeast before I dry hop because I've experienced unpleasant interaction between the hops and the yeast. Now, for some styles like Northeast IPA, that interaction is part of the style. And I'm not saying that there's a bad interaction in Northeast IPAs and there's something wrong with them or anything like that. I'm just saying that there are interactions that happen between the yeast and the beer, and that could be part of Christian's issue here. Uh, what are your thoughts on it, man? Well, I mean, I think you're right about the you know, the oxidation type characters. A lot of times I get it as an, as an interaction of yeast and water and everything else. And of course I think the hops are just going to exacerbate it. But of course I do have to come back. And there was a follow-up uh, from uh, Christian who said, I just wanted to tell you the development. I threw the beer away. It was too harsh. <laughs> well, man, so, sometimes that's all you can do. Well, and he also follows it up with, I came to the conclusion that the off flavor was not really metallic, but fusel alcohols. What I don't understand is why I got these characteristics. It tasted fine before dry hopping. I did ferment with a semi-high temp using 1272 American 2, uh, fermentation uh, temperature of around 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Three weeks in primary, never in secondary, carbonated in a keg. So, he says, it is so deflating to have problems, and I've had problems with my last four brews, all different problems. I guess I just had an unlucky streak. So, there you go. Uh, so, yeah, if Fusel's... Fusels to me are always either yeast temperature or yeast health. Yeah. And so I, I don't think I, that's I would, related to I the I would hops, say huh? 70 degrees is less than ideal for 1272, but it's not to my mind necessarily going to give you any sort of fusels unless you're talking that 70 degrees air temperature and the beer itself was probably riding higher. Right. But I would also really guess that you probably had a yeast health issue. I would say that both of those are possible. Um, although, you know, Christian, one thing I would really recommend to you is put some effort into flaw identification, learning different flavors and how they affect things. Because before you can diagnose the cause of a problem, you have to be able to describe the problem accurately. So, you know, maybe it was fusils, uh, Maybe it wasn't. Uh, it does seem strange that you detected them late because, if anything, fusels should get better uh, as the beer ages, you know, should become less apparent. So, you know, make sure that you're diagnosing your problems correctly. Yeah. And I mean, to me, I think fusels are also going to change with, I think, with oxygen pickup. So it's entirely possible as well that, like, with some of the treatment or the amount of time on the yeast. Et cetera, that you know, you may have had some changes to the aroma overall that would have made the, the fusels more apparent. Right, right. Okay, and we've got one more that you're going to take here. And our second question comes from Fly Rabbit Brewing Company via email. And we have a guest answer on this one because I wanted to make sure that we got this right. But uh, Fly Rabbit Brewing writes, Hi, Denny and Drew. I primarily brewed two different types of beer, Saison and Sour. 
As a result, I experimented with a lot of different yeast strains. I recently read some articles about breweries that maintain horny tanks for their house cultures. I was thinking of making one of them with a small ported fermentation vessel. Over time, I would contribute dregs and new yeast strains. As I use some for brewing, I will replenish it with about a gallon or two of fresh wort. Or if I haven't brewed in a while, more than a month, I think it would be good to partially empty the tank and refill with more unfermented wort. What are your thoughts on this practice? Uh, how do you think that it will translate to the homebrew scale? Have any of you had any experience with creating or maintaining blended cultures? Anything you can think of that I should be concerned about? So my very first thing was I read your question and went, hmm, well, I like your idea of how to maintain the yeast and keep going and kind of making a yeast solera, but also this is radically out of my depth. So I reached out to good old Michael Tonsmeyer, our friend of the podcast, the mad fermentationist, old sock, and the soon-to-be purveyor of sapwood cellars over in Maryland. And I said, Mike, help. And so Mike <laughs> came back and he said, well, it's not quite the standard terminology. I've heard the term horny tank used by Lambic producers as the tank where they pump the wort after cooling in the cool ship for a day or two before going into barrels. It isn't cleaned often, so cultures grow for the season. As far as maintaining mixed cultures at home go, I've had the best luck simply harvesting, refrigerating, and pitching. I like using a variety of cultures, though, so I don't bother for most. If a beer turns out well, I'll pitch bottle dregs from it into a new batch with some fresh sack. With a blended culture stored warm, certain microbes will come to dominate, depending on feeding, temperature, oxygen, etc. This may or may not produce good beer, and I haven't done this in, in earnest. So even Mike is kind of sitting there going, well, it might work, but it's not what I do. Yeah, it seems like basically it's a crapshoot. If you're feeling lucky, give it a try. Uh, now, having said that, we do have in the tank so to speak, a interview with Kevin Osborne of Celador Ales over here in Van Nuys, California, which should be coming up shortly. And Kevin does do some of this, uh, this mixed fermentation, mixed culture type thing. So you might be able to find out some more answers there. So there you go. Fly rabbit brewing. Cool. All right. And Drew today has both the quick tip and the something other than beer. Hit it. Yeah. So quick tip. Do your closed transfers with CO2 pressure. I've talked a little bit about this in the past, and I've seen some of it come back up, but particularly now in this day and age of everybody wanting to jam as much hop aromatic oil into everything with a minimal amount of loss, do yourself a favor and figure out how to transfer, rack, siphon, whatever your beer, using CO2 to push things out and actually kind of keep everything less exposed to air. I You see me do this with my kegs, where I just do a jumper from my 10-gallon keg to my 5-gallon kegs. Or you see me do it with my carboys, and please be very careful when you do this, with a racking cane that I built using a stainless steel racking cane, some regular tubing, one of those carboy hoods that's designed to fit over the top of a six and a half gallon carboy, and a gas barb. And I literally just charged the carboy up to under three PSI and let that push everything out. Now, again, glass carboys are not pressure vessels, so big grain salt, do something to keep yourself safe. And whatever you do, don't try and pump a lot of CO2 into these things because that will be a bad day. So, yeah, that's right. And remember that caution there. Uh, if you do it, we're warning you right now to do it very carefully. And if your carboy explodes, we are not responsible. Yep. So if you really want to be safe, you build yourself a box to put the carboy in and let that actually catch any shrapnel. But, by all means, I think with this day and age, if you're going to brew your ultra hoppy beers, you know, figure out how to use CO2 to push things around so you avoid some more of that oxygen exposure. That goes right in line with the whole tip about purging your kegs, too. 
So yep. there you go. Exactly. exactly. All right. And then on the something other than beer, you guys know that I love me my YouTube. And what you may not know is I also love me my sports. I do I spend a lot of time watching baseball and football. And there is a sports media website out there called SB Nation. And for the most part, I can come uh, take or leave what they write. But there is one guy who works for them, John Boys, who does videos for them, does two different series that if you are a nerd about numbers and a nerd about sports, you will absolutely trip yourself over. They're available on YouTube. One of them is called Chart Party as in a chart and you're having a party with it. And he, there are all these crazy animations, but he digs deep down into data to go figure out trends of, uh, of things that are happening in sports, like looking at his favorite worst baseball player and their, you know, their slugging percentage, what it would be like, how many home runs you would uh, get if you sent Barry Bonds to the plate and he never got to bat. Like he actually just stood at the plate and with no bat, how often would he still get on, on base? <laughs> um, and then also he just released one called kickoffs are stupid and bad talking about why the kickoff in the NFL is the worst play that should be gotten rid of and what can be done with it. And he has all these charts and statistics to back it up. But then the other series that he does is what's called pretty good. And these are absolutely hysterical. They are stories that as he puts it are pretty good stories and they're all basically more or less around sports I'll give you an example of two of them. One of them is about the most lopsided college football game ever played, which was Georgia Tech versus Cumberland College, when Georgia Tech was being led by John Heisman, you know, the guy they named the award for. And it was sort of a revenge game played by Heisman for some uh, nasty little uh, ringer business that Cumberland had pulled in a baseball game. He beat Cumberland 222 to zero. And the whole video is the story of this game, how it got set up, and exactly how the hell a college football team scores 222 points. Because that is like mathematically impossible. But outside of that, there was another example of a story that he did called Rat Poison and Brandy and the 1904 St. Louis Marathon about arguably the worst marathon ever run in the Olympics where there was one source of water, they were running it in like 90 degree summertime uh, heat in St. Louis with all the humidity, and one of the competitors was being fed strychnine and brandy by his team in order to keep them going. And then you get down to the end of it and you find out why the marathon itself was arranged so shoddily. I highly recommend it. You have to go watch it. Go watch these John Boys and SB Nation videos, Chart Party and Pretty Good. You will laugh if you like sports and nerdery at all. There you go. Cool, man. Well, with that said, I guess it's time to wrap things up for this show. Thanks for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a whole bunch of different beer discussion forums, including the AHA forum. And Drew hangs out on the subreddit for homebrewing, as well as the Slack homebrewing channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, or experiments, or even just rant and rave, we get a lot of that. You can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. 
gmail.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1ale. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.